Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 87. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about urban apologetics and whitewashing Christianity with Pastor Jerome Gay Jr., who is the founder and pastor of Vision Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the author of The Whitewashing of Christianity, A Hidden Past, A Hurtful Present, and A Hopeful Future. And he is one of the contributors to the recent volume on urban apologetics published by Zondervan. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Grace Sangalang Ng, Reverend Daniel Parham, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this is the penultimate episode in our series on apologetics. And in this episode with Jerome, we talk about whitewashing, which is a concept that he explains in this in this episode. And, and we discuss its relevance specifically for apologetics to those who are African-American or in the, in the Black community. What did you guys make of our conversation with Jerome? That the apologetic discourse has to be an empathetic discourse, uh, that it has to be one that's rooted in the reality of the lived experience of the people who we are um, seeking to present the gospel to, right? And presenting the gospel is not in, um, it, it's not just a logical discourse. It, it is really entering into the humanity uh, of the experience of the worlds in which people live. In particular, I think he touched on um, the world that is the world of the Black experience. Uh, and how that in some ways can flavor uh, the view of the gospel in a way that he mentions is a stumbling block, um, a stumbling block that uh, has not been forged by by Black Americans or uh, the Black diaspora, but a stumbling block that has been forged by those who were seeking to present something that was other than the fullness of the gospel. Yeah, so I just really appreciated how Jerome talked about the contributions of both the African church and how a lot of the early church fathers were African, which we don't always learn. Yeah, we we don't really learn like in seminary or in like our history classes. Um, And also the contributions of like the contemporary Black church, like how holistic they see the gospel and how it's not just, yeah, cognitive, but it is something that needs to be lived out and also felt kind of going with what Daniel said, um, having that empathetic apologetics and really entering into people's um, experiences and just building those relationships. I think that was really helpful for me. And I really enjoyed hearing from Jerome about that. I just love his tone and tenor the entire time, how he wanted to step in, just like Grace and Daniel were saying, wanted to step into relationship, wanted to confront some misconceptions, but at the same time, help people understand and walk alongside of them, love them. And you can just really sense the, really sense the pastoral nature of him coming out. The scholarly nature is definitely there of him knowing his facts and citations and all that fun stuff. And he presented a lot of facts, but I love the pastoral aspect of how he wants to present it. And he wants to address issues that are important and that'll uh, help with unity. Uh, I just really appreciate that. And here's our episode with Pastor Jerome Gay Jr. 
Thanks so much for joining us, Pastor Jerome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So how about we begin by hearing about how you would define whitewashing, drawing upon the title of one of your books, The Whitewashing of Christianity. Yeah, certainly. So uh, whitewashed Christianity refers for the affinity of white Christian scholars in antiquity to dominate the Bible, literature, art, and history with, with white imagery and white people at the expense of authentic diversity to resonate more deeply with their audiences. And so uh, that's that's kind of the, the working definition I'm working from from my book is to say that the, the issue as it relates to Christianity in particular is not the inclusion of people of European descent, but it's the exclusion of black and brown people when it comes to patristics and church history and how how many of the African church fathers are presented as white men and the African mothers are presented as white women. Um, and so the same markers we would take in terms of geography and ethnicity, when it comes to art, it, it, it seems like that is, that's not necessarily given the same credence if they're of African uh, descent. So even in my, my theological education, to, to find out uh, with, with awe that Augustine was African um, mm. showed the example of like how that's not communicated, whether that's intentional or not. Um, could you give some of those names and, uh, of early church fathers and, and the mothers of the church to uh, coming from my black church standpoint, just thinking about um, who are those leaders in the early church that uh, we've either tended to whitewash or uh, just, have to, just have no knowledge of whatsoever? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, when we think about the Council of Nicaea and one of the most prolific voices at the Council of Nicaea, you're talking about Athanasius. He's, he's an African man. Um, but he's presented as a white man. Tertullian, giving us the concept of the Trinity. This is a huge contribution to the Christian church and the Christian theology. He's African. Uh, two African female martyrs, Perpetua and Felicity. Again, these are presented as white women, but these are two African female martyrs. Uh, one of them was pregnant. One, one of them, their dad tried to convince them to leave Christianity. And she writes in her diary how she refuses to reject the faith, even if it cost her her life. These are African women. A lot of people are not familiar with a guy named Shenouda of Retreat. Um, Shenouda of Retreat, another African church father and leader. Cyprian, uh, another African. And Origen, not, not that I affirm everything Origen did, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Origen. Origen was African as well. And so uh, I have a chapter in my book called Hidden Heroes where I, where I talk about them in a little more detail. And I had original artwork created because I do think we need to color correct. Because again, this, this, the narrative that's being presented through imagery is that not only is the Christian faith a white man's religion, but Black people didn't contribute anything of credence to the Christian faith and theology. Yeah, and actually going with that, can I ask you a question about uh, the misconception that Christianity didn't come to Africa until white colonialists brought Christianity to Black people? Can you address that misconception? Yeah, that's that's one of the things I wanted to address because whitewashing has a evangelistic effects. So when you paint the Bible, you know, 12 white disciples, Moses basically led a million white folk out of Egypt. When you when you present things like that and then you present all of the African church fathers and mothers as white, then we have to give credence to the assumption that people that aren't in our faith have that Christianity is a white man's religion because functionally we're presenting it that way. So consequently, when they hear Ephesians 6, say, slaves obey your masters, they begin to fall, 
incorrectly conflate um, slavery and degradation with the Christian faith and think that Black people only met Christ on the plantation, uh, which is false. One of the first things I say is when I'm engaged, and in particular people with African spirituality, even Hebrew Israelites and people who, who, uh, who come against the Christian faith, as I say, number one, sl- white supremacists, number one, they didn't try to beat sl- uh, Christianity into our uh, African ancestors. They tried to beat inferiority. There's a difference. They tried to take scriptures out of context to convince us that our identity is cursed. But as we just said earlier, when we think about Athanasius, you're talking about 325. Transatlantic slave trade is 1619. So you're talking about 1300 years before the transatlantic slave trade, you have African Christians. Uh, Dr. David Daniels, in an article he contributed to the Jew 3 Project, talks about the African Christians that were on the slave ships that they already came over here with the African faith. He even talks about how Martin Luther got a lot of his orthodoxy from Ethiopian Christians before the Protestant Reformation. And so you have, you have tons of examples when we talk about these African church fathers, you talk about the Ethiopian and the Coptic church, you talk about John Mark, who is an African Cyrenian Jew who wrote the gospel of Mark. And if you embrace Mark in priority, his gospel was written first and the other gospels are based off an African man. So not only are we in the scriptures, not only did we um, contribute to theology, but we also wrote scripture. So God used an African man uh, to give us the gospel of Mark. And consequently, it was the shortest one. So he gave us the shortest one to get right to the point, And we can thank an African man for that. <laughs> so I had a question about, you mentioned art too, and iconography, like as yeah. far as the worship of the early church and when icons started presenting themselves, are they yeah. present them as acts of uh you know, to devote yourself to start thinking through the saints and all these kind of different things. What mm-hmm. role does iconography play in that? Because you know, you Google image search, and Athanasius is a white guy. Augustine yeah. is a white guy, right? So, can you can you kind of speak to that just a little bit more? Yeah, when you um, so Ibram Kendi, um, now he's this guy's not a Christian, but he wrote a very detailed historical book on the history of racism called Stamp from the Beginning, and in in his book, Dr. Kendi talks about how the early um, white American church intentionally only used white imagery in their evangelism because they wanted to associate Christianity with American and white. So they, they wanted to nationalize Christianity. And so when you look at that, the iconography that's what you see. But you can actually go even earlier than that. What a lot of people don't know about the, the Roman historian Tacitus, and I, and I put this in my book, Tacitus in his writing of uh, Germania, he says that, that the Roman or Germanic tribes are free from the taint of intermarriage. And so he sees, now it's not necessarily racism because he, he doesn't use racial terms, but he is referring to people of a darker hue as tainted. And so you have even here in 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 uh, in Tacitus's writings and Romanitas, you begin to see this kind of uh, degradation of people of a darker hue, and then from there you begin to get into what's called the degenerative hypothesis and the teleological theory as it relates to the value of people. And the black and brown people are always at the bottom, and so imagery was a big part of that: is to present white as right and pure, and black as cursed and cursed and less than. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that, especially in a, a largely illiterate culture. 
and how do you get the nationalism? You know, that's really, that's really insightful. I want to check that book out. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 So that, that's good. And, 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 and the other thing is, you know, when they, when, so what's interesting is they, they, so they, they bring African slaves over here and then they, they call them illiterate because they don't know English. It's like, no, no, they're, they're not, they're not an illiterate culture. They have their own dialect. They can read. They were worshiping Yeshua. Um, they didn't call him that in their dialect, but it's just amazing. And, and that's, that's why I say when I define whitewashing, which is the first chapter, what exactly is whitewashing? I'll talk about the deliberate nature of it. So we need to understand how we got here. And I always say this, the answer isn't to blackwash. The answer to whitewashing isn't blackwashing. We want to keep the gospel central. But again, we do need to color correct because the functional Christian church in America presents Christianity as white. Yeah, sorry. I was thinking about the white or the uh, the white culture of Europe with the illiterate people in Europe. Gotcha. And iconography okay. and how it's uh, how it presents who the saints are, and that's how they start to understand. Mm-hmm. And and it kind of ingrains yeah. it in the nationalism that they're the white. They look a lot like the king. They look a lot like the rulers. They look like the oligarchy or whatever is happening. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is an illiterate culture. No, no, thank Art you. speaks thank to you. that. Yeah. No, thank you for that clarification. I, I call him Pantene Pro V Jesus. That's that's the picture. Nice. Yeah, that <laughs> there you go. Us. There you go. Yeah, his hair and beard are immaculate, but he's inaccurate. Yeah, yeah, there you go. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that totally reminds me of like in Sunday school, you know, like the felt board with, yeah, like the white Jesus, like blonde hair, blue eyed. And yeah, yeah I, I think I always felt some distance to that too, like growing up yeah. in a mostly Filipino church. I'm just like, yeah. I always felt a little like, is that really true? <laughs> yeah, even though as, <laughs> as a kid, it's like, it's hard to relate to that. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I started the book off with an episode of Good Times. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that show, but there, there's a there's a Black Jesus episode. And, and Florida, who's the mom, she points to the, you know, JJ paints a Black Jesus and Florida comes home and she's infuriated at seeing a black Jesus, even though they're a black family, right? Um, and she points to the white Jesus and she says, this is the only Jesus I know. And I, and I kind of build on that point. Why? Why is white Jesus the only Jesus she knows? And because of whitewashing, in part, that's not the only issue. And I want to kind of unpack, you know, how we, how we got here. Can you say more about how you extend this into the field of apologetics, especially in light of yeah. your contribution to the recent volume, Urban Apologetics? Yeah, so my chapter in Urban Apologetics was called All White Everything. And then obviously my, my book is called The Whitewashing Christianity, uh, the full volume on what whitewashing is. And so what the thing I want people to understand is, you know, for the urban apologists, when we're dealing with people in the, the conscious community and they're telling Black people, white Jesus won't save you. And I say, yeah, I, I agree with that because it's not based on the color of his skin and I don't, he's not a white guy. But they're saying, you know, white Jesus won't save you. White Jesus isn't coming back. Um, Christianity is not a faith for us. It was beaten into us. And then what they point to is the imagery. They point to the imagery. They bring up old articles about the curse of hand, the Schofield Bible that actually affirmed the curse of hand. They're looking at all this white imagery of these African church fathers. And so what, what, what Christians have to realize is that people that are on the outside, they look at our faith as a monolithic one. They look at our faith as one that actually 
approves and affirms the degradation and dehumanization of an entire group of people. They look at our faith as one that conflates conservatism as the Christian faith. And so these are all things we need to know and engage apologetically to say, I want to affirm the idea that, yes, it's been whitewashed, but I want to disagree with the conclusion that we should reject we should reject Jesus as a result of white scholars trying to whitewash the Bible in history. I want to say, yes, whitewashing has happened. Whitewashing is a thing. But Jesus never affirmed that. And so we need to recognize that this creates an unnecessary barrier to people hearing the gospel. Now, the gospel should and will eclipse those barriers. But as an apologist, you have to engage and deconstruct the things that are getting in the way of the gospel. And whitewashing is an unnecessary barrier that we keep upholding as long as we only put forth white imagery. We only herald white scholars. We whitewash all of the African history. We don't know the African scholars. We don't give them uh, credit for what they've contributed to theology. We always present only white faces in our seminary classes. You peruse St. Vladimir's Press, all, you pretty much only see white faces. So we need to know this. Not, not again, again, pointing this out in and of itself doesn't save. Only the gospel saves. But again, whitewashing is a barrier to getting that message in the minds of people we're trying to engage. And as apologists, as Christians, uh, we should care about evangelism. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should say, hey, remember, you know, Acts 15, like don't create a barrier to the gospel, right? Well, whitewashing creates a barrier to the gospel. And so we, that's, that's what people need to know. Um, and again, it may not be every context, but just because it's not your context doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that it's not an issue. And this is why this must be addressed. I think it's helpful hearing that. I, I think particularly, I think in an American context where we, we see in scholarship about the decline of the church, uh, the mm -hmm. decline of spirituality of the church. But a lot of times, if you put that in comparative to the, uh, the church in relationship to African-Americans, we, we historically have been some of the most consistent in terms of yes. our faith allegiance in Christ, our commitment to the life of the church, um, while also being one of the most marginalized ethnic groups in American mm -hmm. history, if not, and I'm being charitable, if not the most marginalized, it, it, depending on this, the time in which history uh, we're exploring. But mm -hmm. I think from an apologetic standpoint there, I, how, how do you... How do you give credence to some of those conversations? Because a lot of times the conversation about the church is actually viewed in a white normative sense in terms of its decline. Um, uh, we even see that globally, right? The church is in decline, but if you look historically globally, the church is in decline in so many predominantly white spaces, mm -hmm. while uh, black and brown spaces have either been at the same level or slightly dipping or growing. Um, so how do you, how do you engage in those spaces when you hear those conversations happening? Yeah, I think we, we just have to, if, if we're going to have an honest conversation, most of the heresy that leads to apostasy came, comes from a white context. When you talk about Pelagianism, um, when, when, when you, when you talk about these things, these, these are not coming from the the African context, when you talk about the enlightenment, you talk about the Jesus seminar, um, you, you talk about these cheap grace, right? You, you talk about these things. These are the context that this is coming from. And this is why when you see the rise of the black church, they always connected orthodoxy and orthopraxy. 
So whereas many of my white brothers and sisters were just talking about conceptually getting it right here, the black church was like, hey, well, what does this look like to love the people in our neighborhood, to set up credit unions, to teach them how to read, to take advantage of like white Christians not wanting to be in the same classroom with black. So literally building a school just so you don't have to sit next to someone black in a Christian school that you have Christians doing this. And so what we said is, well, it's faith and works. Our works do not save, but our works reveal if we truly are. That's the point James is getting at. And so we wanted to have the orthodoxy, believing the right thing, orthopraxy, doing the right thing, but then orthopathy, feeling the right things, being compelled by the gospel. And so you see that in the historic Black church. When you go to Alexander Crummel, Alexander Crummel can really be the father of Pan-Africanism, where he he joined this idea of the Imago Dei with Black dignity because we weren't receiving it. And so you've always seen that in historic Black church. And so even back then, we didn't call it social justice. There's argument now with the whole CRT, social justice. The Black church said, no, this is living out your faith. And you can't pay your bills, we'll help you. You know, we'll, we'll pay, you know, your children acting up, we all help raise them. There was this communal thing that they saw in the Bible, which the, the Eastern faith is a communal faith, it's America that's individualistic. And that's, again, a European concept that doesn't even fit the Hebrew nature of the Jewish community. So these are the things we need to, I, I want to remind them of that. Like, no, when you, when you look at the historic Black church, not that it's perfect, none of us are, only Christ is. These are some of the things we can celebrate about the historic Black church. Some, some, of, your, some of you, are, like I, I'll have conversations and guys, I've had some people have the audacity, man. What has the Black church done for the Black community? I say, where do I start? <laughs> where, where do I start? Some of you are able to, your ancestors, some of your grandparents are able to read because of the Black church. Like the, the, they were able to get a loan or, or have access to certain things because of the Black church. And so it's just important that we know the history and we don't base our effectiveness on our proximity to whiteness as it relates to what the trends say, because a lot of times those trends don't include black and brown people when they're doing their, uh, when they're coming together with these stats. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Yeah, I just love hearing about like the richness of um, the black church and the contributions of the black church and just how holistic looking at the orthodoxy, orthopraxy and orthopathy. Yeah, I think that's just really cool to see like Christianity and God's love in action. And um, I think you talk some more about that in your book, kind of the whole, like how a lot of times the Western way of conceptualizing Christianity is more this like factual, cognitive Mm -hmm. way of uh, looking at um, Christianity instead of this like holistic experiential way. And I just wonder also how that contributes to um, the way apologetics is done as well. Um, how that is really different in a white setting versus like a black setting. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So, so I think the, the differences can come in when you're only arguing or debating the concepts, but not the impact. And so a lot of times the, uh, and again, I don't want to broad stroke because I'm talking about whitewashing. So not, I'm not saying all white people do this, uh, but when we look historically, the, the, the focus was just on the cognitive argument, the, con- the concept of this, the concept of theodicy. But whereas the, the, the historic Black church, even if you look at the 
the African martyrs are looking at, okay, what are the effects, not just the concept of the problem of evil, but what about the trauma of the actual experience? Let's enter into that and not just argue over theodicy and how does theodicy and sovereignty coexist? Those are, that's a good argument. So I'm not discounting that. That's a good argument. But don't stop there because if you stay there, you forget the person. The person needs to be ministered to them while they're, while they're battling infertility. And they're wrestling with, I'm faithful to God. I give. And then you have to teach them, well, it's not about those things, but that's what they're wrestling with. And I, and I can't have a child. Or I had a child and I lost them. Or I miscarried three times. How is God good? And, and then, you, then we want to point to the scriptures and say, you're not alone. Jeremiah cursed his own birthday. Elijah wanted to die. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was literally connected to Jesus in the womb. And in Matthew 11, he said, man, are you the one that we need to look for somebody else? Because he's wrestling with, why am I in jail for doing the right thing? <laughs> right? So he's, he's wrestling. And so we need to enter, the urban apologist enters the experience. And that's where I think the ball is dropped. Not that we, not that we deify our experience or that experience is necessarily the best teacher, but it should not be, it should not be negated because that's, that's where we miss each other. And so, and, and everyone is still bringing their experiences um, in, in some way to their interpretation of, of the text if they're not careful. And so that's, that's what we have to look at. It's not just to only look at the cognitive conceptual argument. We should, but we also need to look at the existential reality. How is it now hitting that person? How are they impacting? And then how are they processing it? So that we can ultimately point them back to Jesus. But if we only deal with just the, the mental aspect of it, negating the experiential aspect of it, the person doesn't feel love. And that's literally textbook what the Pharisees would do. That's literally a pharisaical way of evangelism, which is no evangelism and it's ineffective. I think I, I definitely see what you're saying, because when we talk about spiritual formation, right, evangelism is, is in this kind of our Western context, like, hey, I need to cognitive, I need to convince you cognitively for you to assent to following Jesus. And, you know, when I walk through people with evangelism, different things like that, integrating spiritual formation is like, yeah. no, you want to develop relationships, you want to know people, you want to be in with them. So when the trauma does come out, you can show them who Jesus is in that, how God is right. with them in it. So when you're, when you're saying orthopraxy or orthopathy, are you basically, is that spiritual formation are, are those two synonyms for each other or is that kind of yeah what it, you know when, a, when yeah you no i got you yeah I, I think just trying to trying to enter the person's experience in and feel you know like like feel like like paul says be angry but don't sin so feel the emotion isn't bad the raw emotion isn't bad but don't be led by your emotion but it's okay for you to have it be angry, Ephesians 4, but don't do this. But I want to encourage your humanity. I want to encourage your agency to feel. But I don't want that, that to lead you to sin because your feelings are real, but they're not always right. And so Paul gives us this reality in how he engages, say, yeah, yeah, you, you have emotion, but you can't trust them all the time. But so for us, we need to enter into that side and this is one of the things that I think is missing it from our seminaries because it's just all head knowledge. And so, hey, you, you, could, you could have great doctrine, but be a jerk. 
And that's what Paul is saying in First Corinthians. Like, don't let your doctrine make you a jerk. Like, you got great doctrine, <laughs> but but you also have the spiritual gift of jerkdom. <laughs> so 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 Paul is like challenging people, the church who remember uh, Chloe's people wrote him. So someone who had a concern, she wasn't afraid of what people thought. And he comes in and he enters like, hey, hey guys, like let's let's not be so head filled that we forget our hearts. And he gives us this idea of holistic discipleship, which includes, again, not not catering to, but at least caring about how things make other, how how what we say, how we make people feel. Here's how I, I said it to my church. We can confront sin sinfully. If we're not careful in confronting sin, we can be sinning ourselves if we don't have the disposition of love. And so we have to make sure, because this is what Paul tells us, speak the truth in what? In love. He, just not, he doesn't tell us what to do, but also how to do it. What does Peter say? Give a reason for the hope that lies within you, but do it how? With gentleness and respect. So it's not just that you were right. Was your tone right? <laughs> was your attitude? That's what the gospel gets at. And that's what Jesus did, right? You heard it was said, but if you even look at her, so he goes deeper than just what people can see. And that's what we need to realize. That's the, that's the biblical reality we're presented with. I think that's a helpful model, particularly, I think, in Western culture where we've seen a visceration of people who have struggled or have fallen and, and restoration is not really a concept in the American yeah. church. It, it, is, it is leave and we'll, we'll make a decision as to, to mm. if we're welcome back in. Um, mm. It seems like Paul is suggesting that it's supposed to be for a means of their repentance, not for a means of their dismissal. Um, and so I think it's it's, yeah. it's good to hear like that gentleness and that love and that and, and that that um, empathy that I think comes too. I think you talked a little bit. You gave inference to trauma, um, and it's interesting too. I think in the context of like, I, I think our apologetics are also are informed by our trauma. So I think mm-hmm. in the urban context you could understand how a marginalized group of people would look at uh, a space and make perceptions of that based upon what we see as dominant. And so context for you, like how do you apologetically speak to a group of people or individuals have experienced trauma and that trauma therefore informs their theology? That's a great question, man. Uh, so, So I think I want to acknowledge the trauma And so I want to first come in and acknowledge these things. Like I was having a conversation with a a person here on staff and and we were talking about that, just kind of the plight of the African-American and how there's disagreement even amongst African-Americans that, that some, some equate talking about your trauma with wanting a handout. And I'm like, no, that, that, that's not, I said, I dealt with a lot of trauma. I've dealt with racism. I lived in Kansas for five years. I experienced racism from my teachers. But I still got my master's and wrote two books. So I, I acknowledge the trauma. I've been treated unfairly, but it didn't stop me. And so, and I still talk about it. And so I think it's important to enter the trauma and say, yeah, hey, I, I, I want to acknowledge and affirm that what you went through was real. But I also want to remind you that Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's an intentionally ambiguous Greek word, so that trouble can include trauma. 
But the verse doesn't stop there in John 16, 33. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So I want to say, hey, this trouble can include the trauma you're experiencing right now. But don't let that trauma be the the foundation of who you are. Don't let that trauma be the defining factor of who you are. And remember that you have victory in Christ. So I want to enter into that and say, hey, it's real. But guess what? Life does go on. And in the end, you win because that's our eschatological position. We know that the tomb is empty. And that's the basis. Paul says that. That's the first important. Like, like if that ain't happened, then we this call is useless. If that, if that tomb ain't empty, <laughs> like we're all wasting our time right now. So, but because the tomb is empty, then that's that's a source of hope in the midst of trauma. And remember that Jesus understands your trauma. Here's what separates Christianity from other faiths. It's Jesus, our, our God, the God man, understands trauma experientially. He's betrayed with a kiss, denied three times. The disciples fall asleep on him. 500 men come with torches and whips. You know, so he experienced trauma. He experienced injustice. Romans and Jews conspiring against one man. <laughs> he, he False witnesses, the Bible says. So he experienced judicial trauma. And he went through that experientially for us to let us know that we can get through it. So I want to affirm that, but I don't want that to define them. So that's what I try to do. I want to enter in and remind people of that. Is your so I'm thinking me as a white guy, right? My approach to enter into trauma with my black brothers and sisters and stepping into that can seem ingenuous. You know, it can seem like, yeah, you don't even know what you're talking about. Um, how how would I as a white guy address, acknowledge, love on people in trauma and then just and be with them and start this kind of relationship? Any tips or advice you have? And I think you said it, you know, entering in being with and just realize that being with is going to be different for each black person you encounter because black people aren't monolithic. And so we, we don't all process our trauma the same. So that's the, that's, you know, going to it, knowing that it's not a one size fits all, but it's not that way for anyone because, <laughs> you know, people process trauma differently. So I think when you say going in, that's step one is just, are you available? You know, um, you know, being there for them, are you capable? Um, are you are being there consistently? Are you reliable? So looking at those bulls, if you will, you know, availability, compatibility, reliability, if you're entering into to that, that's that's where you start. But having those conversations and even having the boldness to ask, you know, how, how can I how can I help you? How can I serve you? Sometimes it, people just need an ear. They're not looking for answers. They're not looking for you to even protest with them. They're just looking for someone that they can vent to and, and share things with. And so just realizing that, man, that it's, it's not going to be the same for every black person because it's not the same for every person, period. And going into it with your eyes open in that way, I think is a, is a, good, a good starting point. But then also challenging, um, I talk about what I call intra-racial confrontation, where you have Jew on Jew confrontation, Paul confronts Peter, you know, just confronting your own constituents on, on some of their blind spots. And some of their assumptions about black and brown people is one way that you can be, you know, a, a huge advocate is, you know, it's really your own constituents, you know, confronting them lovingly, you know, still having a loving tenor, but confronting them on their misconceptions, assumptions and stereotypes or caricatures 
they may have about black and brown people or black and brown suffering or how people process trauma and things like that. Uh, so those are a couple of things I think that would be helpful. And to go along with that, how do people of color at predominantly white institutions help their institutions like see their need for change, especially in like theological schools where, you know, whitewashing is just like continually happens and is continually Mm -hmm. perpetuated? Yeah. So you have to first decide. Is this part of your calling? Now, why do I say that? you probably won't see the changes in a four-year span if you're a four-year student. So you need to first, you got to come back to, hey, man, I'm, I'm called to do this. And if I'm called to do this, I have to allow the leeway the same way I don't do things I should do for Jesus the first time, right? That this school probably won't either. So what do you look for? I tell people, look for a willingness. It's not going to happen probably within it's all, this isn't the perfect example, but it's, it's like Moses, you're not going into the the promised land. (laughs) You probably won't enter the promised land of this diverse, uh, diverse utopia, maybe that you're praying for at a predominantly white PWI, a predominantly white institution, but you can get things started. What you have to look for, is there a willingness from the, the decision makers? Is there a willingness to number one, at least have the conversation? Is there a willingness to go against the grain of what the school may be feeling like? Hey, this has worked for us. Yeah, it works for maybe this white context, but it doesn't necessarily work. Or, or there's some aspects that are harmful that you may have not considered. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, I, 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 if I'm called, is there a willingness? Number three, if there's not a willingness, is this a deal breaker for me? Because if, 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 if you're saying it's not a deal breaker, then you have to expect disappointment and you have to know what you're setting yourself up for. If you say, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and just stay here these four years or five or six or whatever. um, You have to answer those questions. And so I think I'm looking for that willingness. I'm I'm looking for, uh, are they willing to have that conversation? And for me, you know, now, I mean, it was different. I, you know, I, I, that was my experience at, at a predominantly white seminary. Um, but my the president was willing. Um, Dr. Danny Aiken was willing to have the discussion and willing to move towards things. It's not perfect, but that can't be the standard for anybody. And so I think that's that's why I really challenge kind of both sides. I still challenge my black and brown brothers and sisters to say, hey, if if we want us, if we want white allies, we got to remember their people. And so you're not going to snap your finger and they get everything right within a semester. That's just not realistic. That's just not, you know, it's just not helpful. And so you have to be willing to go through this for, for a while and you got to extend to them the same grace that Christ has extended to you. That, that doesn't mean excusing willful ignorance. That doesn't mean excusing racism, but, but it, it does mean having a posture of, hey, I got to be in this for the long haul. So I always ask the calling question first, because if you're not called, then you may want to go somewhere else um, so so that you're not frustrated for four to five years. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, follow up with that. How do you stay in that zone, man? How do you, you know, you you feel the call, the, you hit the walls, you hit the frustration, maybe even leadership is not susceptible. You know, they're not thinking about that. They're kind of brushing off. How do you personally 
what disciplines do you practice? How do you go about staying in that place where you know God's mm. called you yeah. to make a change? It's just going to be slow and painful. Yeah, I say community. So I've, I've, you know, God has had me counseling a lot of black and brown people who are either on staff at predominantly white churches or on staff at seminaries. And I just want to provide a, a community for them where they can have an outlet and not feel like they have to code switch. So code switch is urban vernacular for kind of fitting a, a white context or fitting a, whatever the dominant context is so that you're acceptable. Um, and you need black and brown folk need spaces where they don't have to code switch. And so I want to provide that for them. Or I encourage them to see, you know, sometimes you'll see this within the church where uh, the, the minorities within that church are not excluding, you know, the rest of their family at the predominant white church but finding that community where there's some common bond to where they don't feel like they have to explain their culture all the time. Not that explaining is wrong, but you don't want to feel like, man, I always got to explain myself, my name, my hair, my this. And so you, you just need some spaces where you can just be. So that's what helped me in my experience. Well, cause I was, I'd already had a plan of the church and uh, it's, it's, I have a diverse, I passed a diverse church. But it's a predominantly black church. So I had that community that I didn't have to code switch at school and didn't feel like I had to code switch at church. And so when you're in those spaces, you almost feel like you can never just be you. And so uh, so I had that community of going to the church and it's OK for us to respond during the preaching. It's, it's And I'm not a hooper. I don't do that. But th- there's there's a there's an understanding there that can be affirmed and appreciated. So I encourage people, if, you, if you're on this, you're listening to this, man, get, get you some community where you don't have to code switch. So what are some practical steps um, a church or like a predominantly white institution um, can take to include contributions from like Africa and the black church? Um, yeah, what are some practical steps that they can make towards that? Great. Well, I think, and, and and I do, I do give, you know, some, some help, what I hope to be helpful things in the book. So in my book, The Whitewashing Christianity, it's like, well, how do we curtail whitewashing? How do we stop it? And so one of the things we can do is, and so this, I'm, this is a laundry list. I won't go through all of it. And this is in no particular order. When we, when we think about just the, the, the global faith, we need to really be intentional about funding more black and brown missionaries. So that's, one of our goals as a church is to send out 100 black or brown missionaries. Of course, if we don't, we're not excluding white missionaries. We support them as well. But this is our goal because it's, I think it's like less than 5% of missionaries are ethnic minorities. And so uh, we need this. We need to get a diverse narrative out by raising up more black and brown people that feel called and sent to the mission field. By God's grace, we were able to plant a black family in Ghana and we planted a church in Navarongo, Ghana, in the midst of the pandemic. Um, I would say, you know, look at, you know, look look to hire qualified. And the reason I'm saying that is for some reason, people assume that, that I'm saying Black, like, I mean, they don't have to be qualified. No, qualified Black and brown people to fill these seminary positions so that you have a diverse staff. Um, they, that, that if it's Greek, they know the Greek, they know the Hebrew, they, they know that, again, they meet the qualifications, but you're intentional about trying to diversify your staff. Look at are you are you platforming black faces but ignoring black voices? So that that's an introspective question you have to look at. You let us you let us sing, um, but but can we formulate the 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 curriculum? 
Um, you, you might have us do, you might let us MC, um, but am I seen as a qualified elder candidate based on meeting the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3? You know, are, are you looking at, those are things you need to look at. Look at, you know, one of, one of the biggest things I used to get is when I would talk about the plight of being black on that campus is white women would come to me after class, um, almost like Nicodemus, um, like, like and, and, you know, trying to be secret, like, and they would say the stuff you feel as a black man, I feel as a woman. Like my professors have told me I shouldn't be in this MDiv class because of their complementarianism. Begin to ask your questions like, is, am I, are we really being biblical? Is there a thin line between chauvinism and what we actually see in the scriptures as it relates to certain doctrines we may hold dear to, but may not be living out biblically? Um, new imagery. That's why I literally had in my book, you'll see different images, original artwork that I had created um, to show these African church fathers and mothers. And so let's put diverse imagery in our in, in these seminary books. But even we need to go back further. White watching starts early. My son at a Christian school, the white Jesus, white 12 disciples, white Moses. Every now and then you might get Samson and they might give somebody with dreads. But most of the time, everybody was white. And so we need to get children's curriculum. And, and this is starting to change. But we need more of that, that that reveals this diversity. And so these are some of the things we need to work on. And then and say the heart of this is the gospel. We are not deifying race. The gospel presents that this is a message for all people. And based on Ephesians 2, God creates a people from all people. Well, that all people should be reflected in our imagery. Because the world needs, instead of just assuming it, you cannot paint everything white and then say race doesn't matter when you've used race in your favor. Let's make, let that be communicated in our imagery that, yeah, it is for all people. Well, let's see all people in, in what we use. And so uh, I'm, I have another project I'm working on with New Growth Press, a children's book next year that I'm excited about. Um, that's going to have that imagery. And so I just think that's some, these are a few things that we can begin to do. So how about as a, as a final question, what, what are some of the responses that you've received to your book on whitewashing of Christianity? Uh, great, great question. So I, I deal with three in the book. Two are, I'll say somewhat negative and w- one is totally negative, but then one's helpful. So the first one is liberation. And so um, uh, around chapter nine, I start responses to whitewashing and one is liberation. And so I want to go through liberation theology and how the rise of liberation thought precedes James Cone. It starts before him. Uh, but I want to give credence to some of it. I don't embrace all of his theology and not his soteriology, but I want people to understand the climate he was in dealing with white supremacy and these people saying that they're Christians when they were literally going to lynchings after service. Like literally after service, they would hang a black person and they would have children there cheering. And so he's he witnessed this. And so he's saying that, you know, black people need to be liberated because if that's Christianity, I don't want any parts of it. And so he wanted to make that distinction. So I want to talk about what liberation is. The second response is self-hatred. You'll have some black people who internalize whitewashing and see themselves with disdain and see other black and brown people with disdain. And so the goal becomes well done from white culture instead of well done from Jesus. And they do whatever they can to fit in. And I wanted to address that. And so that one's called self-hatred, the making of a coon, which is a very hard term, but I made coon an acrostic, which stands for contributing to ongoing oppression through negligence. And I want people to want to unpack that 
But then the third response is urban apologetics. And I'll, it's several responses there. One of the things I say though, is we must stop answering fact-based questions with faith-based answers. And my point there is if someone asks about the letter J not being invented into the 15th century, so how could his name be Jesus? Um, we need to know how to engage those questions as Christians. When people talk about the councils and them voting on books of the Bible, that's a fact-based question. We need to know about that. If we, here's, 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 my, here's my conviction. We're saying that there's one way and one book for 7 billion people on planet Earth. We better be able to defend it. If we're going to have the audacity to say that there's one way, there's one God, and there's one book for the entire world, then we have to be able to defend it. So we must stop when people ask us fact-based questions. We need to be able to engage them. And I tell people, I can defend my faith without the Bible because I can point to, now I'm going to get you to the word. I believe it's the word of God. Don't get me wrong. But if someone tells me they don't believe, I can't say what the Bible says. They just told me they don't believe it. So now I want to argue through history. And I want here's, now I want to point them to these African church fathers and point them even to, to non-Black like Josephus. And, and so they can see the rich history and reason within the Christian faith. And lastly, overall, the response has been good. I haven't gotten a, a ton of uh, CRT thrown at me. Um, so, because if they say that, I know they haven't read the book. If you call me that, you have not read the book. And so you, you've shown yourself to be dishonest. If you read it, then you know I don't affirm because there's no redemption in CRT. It's just a legal theory. Um, there's some credence to it, but but it's it's no redemption in it. So the the answer for redemption is going to has been and always will be the gospel. But overall, um, as in closing, the response has been great. But I unpack those three, and so I just pray people get the book. It's on Amazon in every form: Kindle, audio book, paperback, hardcover, and consume the content. I have discussion questions at the end of each chapter. So hopefully, even dissent groups can form. People who disagree can read and begin discuss, to discuss, because that's what Isaiah said, that we should come and reason together. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jerome, for all of your insights and reminding us about the, the rich heritage of uh, Christianity in Africa and with all the, the Black voices that you mentioned and, um, and for calling our attention to this uh, dynamic of whitewashing and, and for calling for that color correction. Really appreciate everything you shared with us. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed myself. <laughs>